0: Well, I got the call last night, just a little warning, and then got the confirmation this morning, It's just always an interesting thing, <laughs> so we're in this little, weird little mix between a lesson slash sermon, if you want to call it that, but we'll do what we can today. Uh, but before we go any further, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this most holy Sabbath day. Lord, we do pray for our pastor, Lord, that he would be able to get to a doctor soon, get his leg checked out, and Lord, he can get up and running and walking soon, and Lord, we uh, pray that you would be with me today, Lord, As I had to add on a little bit here, the last minute, Lord, I pray that it would be edifying to our people, Lord, that you convict us of our sin, Lord, you would uh, be with us, be with our hearts, Lord, enable us, Lord, to not only hear your word today, but to embrace it, Lord, that we may live lives, to glorify you, for we love you, and we ask all this in Christ's name, amen. Well, last Lord's Day, we began to directly answer the question, for whom did Christ die? And I say directly because if you've been paying attention and really thinking about what we've done in the past five lessons regarding the nature of Christ's atoning work, then the answer to that question should be fairly obvious. The nature of Christ's atoning work combined with the understanding that not every person is going to obtain salvation infers that Christ did not die for every person, but rather for some people. There's no other conclusion one could make. John Owen, and you can't talk about limited atonement without bringing up Owen, right? Owen effectively argued it this way, and it's one of my favorite arguments. He said, quote, God imposed his wrath due unto, and Christ underwent the pains of hell for either one, all the sins of all men, or two, all the sins of some men, or three, some sins of all men. If the last, some sins of all men, then have all men some sins to answer for, and so no man will be saved. For if God entered into judgment with us, though it were with all mankind for one sin, no flesh would be justified in his sight. Psalm 130 verse 3 says that the Lord should mark iniquities, who should stand? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one will stand. But if the second, that uh, that is it which we affirm, that Christ in their stead and room suffered for all the sins of all the elect in the world. But at the first, that Christ died for all the sins of all men, which is more commonly taught today, why then, asked Owen, are not all freed from the punishment of all their sins? Now you will say, because of unbelief. They will not believe. But this unbelief, is it a sin or not? If not, why should they be punished for it? But if it be, then Christ underwent the punishment due to it or not. And if so, why then must that hinder them more than their other sins for which he died for partaking of the fruit of his death? And if he did not, then he did not die for all their sins. Let them choose which part they will. You see, as Owen's argument demonstrates, if you say that Christ died for all the sins of all men, then you have to ask why there would be some of those men who will end up in hell for eternity paying for their sins. And if your answer is, well, they go to hell for their unbelief, then the question is, well, isn't their unbelief a sin? If you say, no, unbelief is not a sin, then why are people being punished for it? But if you say, yes, unbelief is a sin, then you have to ask, well, why are they being punished for something that we're told, supposedly, that Christ is said to have been punished for? If your response is that Christ was not punished for the sin of unbelief, then you've contradicted your initial premise that Christ died for all their sins. On the other hand, if you argue that he did die for that sin, then you have to redefine the nature of the atonement, contrary to everything we've seen from Scripture in the past five lessons. Now, I realize when you start arguing this way, some people's heads explode, right? They can't, they can't take it. Some people think you're trying to trick them. Right? Well, it's not a trick, Okay. What this argument does, it simply forces us to think about the consequences of our beliefs. And that argument is sufficient to end it there, I think. But we didn't end it there. Last Lord's Day, we started to look at some more direct teachings from Scripture regarding who Christ died for. And we noted a few things. One, we saw that Scripture often qualifies who Christ died for. For example, in John 10, we read that Christ lays down his life for the sheep and then goes on to uh, reveal, speaking to unbelieving Jews, that not everyone is said to be among those sheep whom he lays his life down for. We read in Acts 20 and Ephesians 5, for example, that Christ obtained, loved, and gave himself up for the church. And further, we noted that in numerous places, we are told that Christ died for many, not for everyone. And then a second angle we noted was how that Christ's work of atonement is tied to his work as high priest and that Jesus himself tells us that his work of high priest is limited to those whom the father gave to him. In John 17, for example, he states, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. Again, beloved, if Christ died for everyone without exception with the attempt to save everyone, Why in the world then would Christ not pray for everyone? Why would he say, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me? Well, it answers itself, doesn't it? Because the Father did not give everyone to Christ to save. Well, that leads me to another argument that can be made as we continue along this train of thought, that there is no conflict between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A definite atonement, that is an atonement that is designed for specific people, namely the elect, is consistent with the particular work of the Father in the covenant of redemption, as well as the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. The Father elects a group of people to salvation. The Son comes and redeems those people. And then the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to those people at the ordained time. Since the Father's work is specific, so is the work of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That the work of the Father is particular and definite can be demonstrated by numerous passages. For example, in Ephesians 1, 4 through 4-5, uh, Paul writes, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And then in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then Paul writes to the Thessalonians in Second 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. And then to Timothy, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1 8 through 9, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You see, it is this will, this design of the father that Christ is said to come and to fulfill by his own life and work. And thus Jesus says in Matthew 26, verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, Father, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And in John 6, 38 Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in Hebrews ten seven, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And then as we read last week, in the same prayer in which Jesus said that he was not praying for the whole world, Jesus goes on to state, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And thus, Robert Raymond can write, in other words, there is harmony and consistency between the Father's salvific work or will and the Son's salvific will and work. But the scriptures expressly represent the Father's salvific will and work. For example, foreknowing, predestinating, calling, justifying, glorifying, as particular, indefinite with regard to their objects. And then Raymond goes on further to state, harmony between the salvific intention of the Father and the salvific intention of the Son would demand that Christ's purpose behind his crosswork be as particular and definite as the Father's salvific purpose and terminate upon the same objects. This is just to say that Christ's crosswork was carried out savingly in behalf of the elect, those whom the Father had given him, John 17, whom the Father would draw to him, John 6, whom the Father would teach to come to him, John six forty five, in whom the Father would enable to come to him, John six sixty It is unthinkable, says Raymond, to believe that Christ would say, now I recognize, Father, that your election and your salvific intentions terminate upon only a portion of mankind, but because my love is much more inclusive and expansive than yours, I'm not satisfied to die only for those you have elected. I'm going to die for everyone. And Raymond's right. It would be unthinkable. And it is certainly not what scripture tells us concerning the harmony of the father's will with that of the son and of the Holy Spirit. Another argument or angle of which this particular atoning work can be seen is when one considers the number of people by God's own providential hand who actually hear the gospel. You know, back in 98, I had just enrolled into uh, the Baptist Seminary down there. Was definitely no friend to this stuff, <laughs> which I didn't even know at the time. But as I was reading, I was think, started thinking about these things. You know, one of the realities that struck me strange, and I think part of it was due because I was looking at voice of martyrs and all the stuff that was going on overseas. I just thought it was strange that if sal- the salvation of people was merely... An issue of just getting the gospel out to as many people as possible to give all these people a chance to respond. Why is God not doing more to make that possible? I mean, we read of God doing great miracles with Israel, we read of burning bushes that are not consumed, seas and rivers that are splitting, massive plagues that are debilitating entire nations. The dead coming back to life, Jesus healing the sick, people walking on water, voices from heaven. You know, the things that unbelievers tell us that if they would just see some of these things, they would supposedly believe. And yet most of this was done in a very small corner of the world a very long time ago. Why is God not doing more of this? I remember back then thinking to myself, you know, God, if he wanted to, could just align the stars with a message. He could shake the entire world with a thunderous voice from heaven to make it very clear to everyone that he's real and ready to forgive. And yet, he doesn't do it. Why? Raymond points out that during his earthly ministry, Christ actually praised his Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that he had hidden the gospel mysteries from the wise and learned it, and revealed them to little children, Matthew 11, verse 25. Tracing his father's actions to his good pleasure, verse 26. And Jesus also declared that only those to whom he reveals the father know him, verse 27. But it doesn't stop there. We go on to Acts, verse uh, or chapter 16. We read that on his second missionary journey, Paul and his companion quote, passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the weather, oh wait, that's not what it says, having been forbidden by terrorists, nope, that's not what it says, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And then a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So God is calling Paul to preach the word to these people but then forbids him to preach the word to these people? In this same chapter, we go on to read that when Paul and Silas get to Philippi, there in Macedonia, that they would be thrown into prison. And then we read in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. God literally moves the earth, opens up all the prison doors, And gives the jailer a good scare when he wakes up and realizes that Paul and Silas were standing outside of their cell. Which then leads to not only to them sharing the word with the guard, leads to his salvation, also the salvation of all those in his house. Yet when Paul attempted to go to Asia and Bithynia, God forbade them to speak the word in those places. Why? Why in the world is God doing this? If it was merely about getting the word out there to give people a chance, why would God forbid it when Paul and Silas were ready and willing to go? Friends, you simply cannot make sense of it. If you are starting with the premise that salvation is merely about getting the news out there to as many as possible in order to give everyone a chance. Furthermore, when we read the Old Testament, I think this is what really triggered it for me back in, because I was, before class started, I wanted to read the Bible all summer and just, you know, get my mind in the Word, get ready for, and then I get the class done and talk about the Bible, which is why I eventually left. But just when you read the Old Testament, have you ever thought about the fact that the majority of it's dealing with a single nation whose land area can fit inside our state multiple times? In fact, I read one site that says modern Israel, modern Israel can fit at least eight times just in the state of Florida. And yet God took this little nation and related to Israel differently than he did to the other nations. In Romans 9, Paul talks about all the privileges this nation received. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Them alone did God adopt as his people. Amos 3, 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And thus, when we get to Paul in the New Testament, he's able to say to a bunch of Gentiles at Ephesus, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, friends, it's simply impossible to hold to the position that God intended Christ's death for every uh, every individual when he has not arranged for every individual to hear the gospel. We heard it there in Acts. God himself restricted Paul from going to Asia to speak the word. And then he would not permit Paul to go to Bithynia. And as a result of that, the gospel spread westward into Europe and not eastward toward Asia. And many Asians died having never heard of Christ. And so Robert Raymond can write, clearly the matter of who hears the gospel is under the providential governance of the sovereign God. And he has so arranged gospel history that many people will never hear about Christ. It is unthinkable to suppose then that God sent his son to save people who, by the ordering of his own providence, never hear the gospel in order that they may believe and be saved. But again, let me remind you, friends, that the tension that so many people have here is created by us. It's not a tension in Scripture. The tension is resolved once you deal with the faulty premise that God is in heaven just anxiously trying to figure out how he can save as many people as possible as long as they'll just cooperate with him. Beloved, that's not the portrayal of God in Scripture. And once you get rid of that false thinking, the tension goes away. Now I'm not saying it's easy to accept, but at least you rid yourself of that tension and contradiction. Even Paul says in Romans 9, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Here, Paul is surveying the spiritual condition of Israel at the time, his kinsmen according to the flesh. And he expresses his desire for their salvation so badly that he would be willing to forfeit his own salvation for them. And yet he says in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, let's just stop and think about this for a second. Here, Paul greatly desires the salvation of the people who are not just ordinary people. As we've already noted, these are people who have received from the hand of God many privileges. They are Israelites, he says. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They received all of these privileges, yet the majority of them were unbelievers. How can that be? What happened? Now, I think if many of us would have been sitting there with Paul as this is being written out, we might have said, well, I can tell you what happened. God tried the best he could to save these people. But ultimately, they have to exercise their free will and accept these things. So no, the word of God did not fail. We failed to exercise our free will and make salvation a reality. But beloved, is that the explanation that Paul goes on to give? Granted, Paul too says that it is not God who has failed. But what's the reason he gives for that? Here would have been a prime opportunity, more than anywhere, to explain the supposed free will of man. But he doesn't do it here. Instead, he says this. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham for not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done any, uh, had, had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Not exactly the explanation we were expecting, was it? Paul doesn't even hint to any notion of free will here. Rather, he says that the reason the word of God has not failed, even though the majority of Jews do not believe, is because it was never the intention of God to save them all. He never promised to save every Israelite. He always distinguished Isaac from Ishmael. Both were natural children of Abraham, children of the flesh, but only Isaac and not Ishmael was chosen to be a child of God, a child of the promise. And that choice originated with God and God alone, according to his sovereign purpose of election. That's why Paul argues that God's word has not failed. God was and is saving exactly who he intends to save. And you know, you're hearing Paul, right? Because of what he goes on to say in the very next verse. In verse 14, Paul voices the very objection that we hear so often from people when you suggest that God elects some people and not others. Well, what shall we say to this then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul finally gets to talking about the very thing that many attribute the tension to, human will. And what does he say about it? He says that man does not possess any independent ability to choose or obtain salvation. And that God is under no obligation whatsoever to show mercy to anyone. He goes on, verse 17 For the scripture says, The Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But you will say to me then, Well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And of course, these are rhetorical questions. The answer is you don't answer back to God. You are in no place to question God's sovereign rule and wisdom. This is his world, beloved, not ours. Well, there are some other arguments that we could go on to make. For example, I'll just mention these in passing, that we could talk about the fact that God does not even provide salvation for fallen angels like Satan. You know, it's funny in all the talk about free will. We just toss Satan off to the side. Poor Satan. We can talk about the fact that there had already been millions of people who had lived and died, thus sealing their fate in hell with their death before Christ ever shows up to die for sins. and Thus, Raymond writes regards to this, unless one is prepared to say that Christ gave all the dead a second chance to repent, it is impossible to suppose that Christ died with the intention of saving those whose eternal destiny had already been sealed in death, who were at the time of his death already in hell. He clearly did not die with the intention of saving them. And then we can talk about how in texts like Romans 6, there Paul argues that all for whom Christ died, not only died with him, but rose with him, resulting in a newness of life in which we are no longer enslaved to sin. It is this union with Christ in his death and resurrection that forms the foundation of our sanctification and glorification. But beloved, if every single person is included in that, How is it that there are millions of people who die having never lived with that resurrection power of the newness of life? Well, I'm going to save that topic of resurrection power for my next sermon. But to quickly answer the question, it's because they didn't die and rise with Christ because Christ did not die for them. There are many arguments we can make, but I need to wrap it up here. So let me conclude with these words from Raymond who wraps it up nicely. He says, quote, Unless one is prepared to affirm the final universal salvation of all mankind, which is so patently umbilical that we will altogether ignore it as a possible option. One cannot have an atonement of infinite intrinsic value and also an atonement of universal extension. One can have one or the other, but not both. If the nature of his atoning work is such that by his death, Christ actually propitiated the wrath of God, removed God's holy sense of alienation and paid the price for sin that God's offended justice required. And if he did this work sacrificially, meaning that he did it for, on behalf of, in the stead of, and in the place of sinners, then it follows that those uh, that for those sinners in whose stead he did this work, as Charles Spurgeon wrote, Christ so died that he infallibly secured their salvation, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. But then this requires that we conclude that Christ did not savingly die for everyone, since neither scripture, history, nor Christian experience will tolerate the conclusion that everyone has been, is being, or shall be saved but for some people only, even those whom the Father had given to Christ. If, on the other hand, Christ did this cross work, whatever it is, and those who advocate an atonement of universal extension must make clear precisely what Christ did do at the cross if he did not actually propitiate, reconcile, redeem, and then they must square their view with Scripture with a view to the salvation of every person without exception, And if he did not do for any one particular person anything which he did not do for every person distributively, we must include one that Christ died neither that Christ, hold on, speak of the atonement of universal extension, we must include one that Christ died neither savingly nor substitutionally for anyone since he did not do for those who are saved anything that he did not also do for those who are lost and the one thing he did not do for the lost was save them, and two, that Christ's death actually procured nothing that guarantees the salvation of anyone, but only made everyone in some inexplicable way salvable, whose actual salvation must of necessity be, root, be rooted then ultimately in soil other than Christ's cross work, namely in the soil of the individual's own will and work. But it should be plain to all that this constructive, or that this construction eviscerates Christ's cross work of its intrinsic infinite saving worth and his Pelagianism and makes salvation ultimately turn on human merit, unquote. And of course, we know from texts like Luke 16, verse 26, and Hebrews nine twenty seven that those who had already died before Christ's death on the cross can't be made salvable. In Luke 16, for example, Abraham tells the rich man who had died and gone to Hades in torment, that quote child remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in manner bad things but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish and besides all this between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us and then in hebrews 9:27 and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that Comes judgment. Warfield insists, "Quote the things that we have have to choose between, are an atonement of high value or an atonement of wide extension. The two cannot go together." And this is the real objection of Calvinism to the uni, uh, universalizing scheme, which presents itself as an improvement on its system. It universalizes the atonement at the cost of its intrinsic value. And Calvinism demands a really substitutive atonement, which actually saves. Well, it is often urged by some, particularly Armenian Christians, in response to all this, that this particularistic teaching is cold and heartless. But in his sermon on 2 Corinthians 5, J. Gresham Machen observed this. He said, people say that Calvinism is a hard creed. How broad and comforting, they say, is the doctrine of the universal atonement. The doctrine that Christ died equally for all men there upon the cross. How narrow and harsh, they say, is this Calvinistic doctrine. One of the five points of Calvinism, quote unquote. This doctrine of the limited atonement, this doctrine that Christ died for the elect of God in a sense in which he did not die for the unsaved. But do you know, my friends, it is surprising that men say that it is surprising that they regard the doctrine of a universal atonement as being a comforting doctrine. In reality, it's a very gloomy doctrine indeed. Oh, if it were only a doctrine of universal salvation instead of a doctrine of a universal atonement, then it would no doubt be a very comforting doctrine. Then no doubt it would conform wonderfully well to what we in our puny wisdom might have thought the course of the world should have been. But a universal atonement without a universal salvation is a cold, gloomy doctrine indeed. To say that Christ died for all men alike and that then not all men are saved. To say that Christ died for humanity simply in the mass and that the choice of those who out of that mass are saved depends upon the greater receptivity of some as compared with others. That is a doctrine that takes from the gospel much of its sweetness and much of its joy. From the cold universalism of that Armenian creed, we turn ever again with a new thankfulness to the warm and tender individualism of our Reformed faith, which we believe to be in accord with God's holy word. Thank God we can say everyone as we contemplate Christ upon the cross, not just that he died for the mass of humanity and how glad I am that I am amid that mass, but he loved me and gave himself for me. My name was written from all eternity upon his heart. And when he hung and suffered there on the cross, he thought of me, even me, as one for whom in his grace he was willing to die, What is a great source of encouragement with such a doctrine? In fact, Paul encouraged the Ephesians, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Blood, I can't think of anything more encouraging and more firm of a foundation for, for the security of our faith those words from Paul right there. Well, as we transition now to the Lord's Supper, what we have ended with raises an interesting question. Gresham said that he knew that when Christ hung on the cross, and suffered there on the cross, that he was thinking of him personally. Now, such a personal thought is certainly encouraging and life-changing, but it raises the question, how does a person actually come to know whether or not they were included? Because God doesn't mark the elect with a tattoo. He doesn't put a little red dot on their head. If he did, in India, it would be, well, never mind. God didn't give a list of infallible names anywhere. And as we saw in Romans 9, you can be of the visible church. You can receive the word, the promises, you can participate in the worship. You may have even been baptized and yet still not be among God's elect. And so what should be an extremely encouraging doctrine can become a great source of anxiety and stress for people. If God has chosen from before the foundation of the world who will be redeemed, and Christ is sent to die for their sins and their sins only, how can I know that I was chosen? How can I know that Christ died for me? Well, the great thing about knowing church history is knowing that such questions are not new. The Synod of Dort, for example, in the early 17th century dealt with some of these very issues. As Keith Mathen points out, the Synod of Dort was an assembly of Reformed theologians called to deal with the controversy that had arisen due to the teachings of Jacob Arminius. Arminius and his followers differed with the Reformed Church in the Netherlands on a number of doctrines, including the doctrine of election. The Armenians taught that, quote, faith and pers- uh, perseverance in the true faith are a condition Prerequisite for electing. In other words, the Armenians taught the doctrine of conditional election. According to this idea, God foresees who will have faith and persevere in the faith, and then He elects those people to salvation. Well, the Synod of Dort rejected this doctrine, believing that it contradicted the teaching of Scripture. They taught instead a doctrine of unconditional election. And this doctrine is explained in detail in the first main point of doctrine in the canons of Dort. After explaining the content, context of the doctrine of election in Articles 1 through 6, Article 7 explains, quote, election or choosing is God's unchangeable purpose by which he did the following. Before the foundation of the world by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, he chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in the common misery. He did this in Christ, whom he also appointed from eternity to be the the mediator, the head of all those chosen and the foundation of their salvation. And so he decided to give the chosen ones to Christ to be saved and to call and draw them effectively into Christ's fellowship through his word and spirit. In other words, he decided to grant them true faith in Christ, to justify them, to sanctify them, and finally, after powerfully preserving them in the fellowship of his son, to glorify them. And God did all this in order to demonstrate his mercy to the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. In other words, God did not choose any of us because he saw that we would believe. He chose in order that we would believe. And this was conditioned only upon the free good pleasure of his will. So how can I know if I am one of those who have been chosen according to the free good pleasure of his will? Well, the Canons address this question in Article 12 on the assurance of election. There we read the following. Assurance of this, their eternal and unchangeable election to salvation is given to the chosen in due time, though by various stages and in differing measure. Such assurance comes not by inquisitive searching into the hidden and deep things of God, but by noticing within themselves with spiritual joy and holy delight the unmistakable fruits of election pointed out in God's word, such as a true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for their sins, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. Notice these reformers acknowledge that you're, you're not going to figure that out by searching into the hidden and deep things of God. Don't even attempt it. In fact, I actually had a friend years back who drove himself crazy trying to do that very thing. And I just watched him spiral into a deep state of depression. And for a moment there, I thought he was going to walk away from it, from all of it altogether. Friends, you're never going to get any assurance that way. But assurance is possible. How? By noticing within themselves with spiritual joy and delight the unmistakable fruits of election pointed out in God's word, such as a true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for their sins, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Our confession, which came out not too long after this, states this way. Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God in the state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. This certainty is not a bare, conjectural, probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces into which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. This infallible assurance doth not belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. Yet, being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of ordinary means, attain thereunto. And therefore, it is the duty of every one to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost in love and thankfulness to God and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance, so far as it is from inclining man to looseness. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation in divers' way, shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by negligence in preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which wounded the conscience and grieved the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as feared him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet are they never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and of the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty out of which by the operation of the spirit this assurance may in due time be revived and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. Notice the divines echo the sentence of Dort here. We cannot know whether we are among the elect or not by trying to search the hidden deep things of God, which are to be revealed by what the confession calls extraordinary revelation. That's not how it comes. Rather, it comes with, through the right use of ordinary means. Rather, it comes by knowing the fruit of our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 7, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And then he went on to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Bad fruit. So how can you know if you are the elect? By asking yourself whether you have the fruits of election. In other words, by an honest self-examination. Understand something. Election is the invisible cause. Spiritual fruit is the visible effect. We can't see the cause, but we can observe the effect. And you can know you're among the elect if you and others observe the fruits of election in your life. And so as we come to this table, we have the bread and wine presented to symbolize that substitutionary atoning work of Christ. Here Christ is not crucified repeatedly, as some blasphemously teach, for Christ accomplished the word once and for all. But here that death is symbolized in the bread representing his body, in the wine representing his blood. And now you are being called upon in the providence of God at this moment to have that honest self-evaluation. One, examine your repentance. Consider whether you have really repented of your former sins and purpose to lead a new life. You can help determine repentance by considering whether you have a sorrow for sin, a hatred of sin, a general forsaking of sin, and whether there are clear evidences of change in your life, in your heart. Have you confessed known sin? Are you genuinely sorry for how your sin has offended a holy and righteous God? Is there evidence that God has been transforming you by his power? Secondly, examine your faith. Consider whether you have a dead faith or a living faith. Whether you have a mere speculative assent to the truth or a lively, genuine trust in God. This is the kind of faith that directs you to Christ as your propitiation and lays hold of his strength as the only power that can cleanse and pardon you. Where is your trust today? In whom is your trust? How often do you ponder the great truths of the gospel? And third, examine your gratitude. Consider whether you are thankful for the precious privileges which are yours in Christ. If you are aware of the depth of your sin and the heights of God's mercy, you will be filled with gratitude. Are you quick to give thanks when you pray? Are you quick to give thanks to God for his grace and mercy? Do you thank God for his most precious gift of his son? And then lastly, examine your love. Consider whether you are in charity with all men. The Christian faith is not only a faith of love toward God, but it works itself out in a love for one another. Are you harboring hatred or malice toward another person? Are you expressing love in acts of kindness and charity? And are you especially showing love to your fellow believers? Let a person examine himself then and let him do it by repentance, faith, gratitude, and love, the fruits of election. And as we examine ourselves, let us be assured that God will certainly receive in grace and welcome to the table of his son all those who repent and walk in faith. But know this, but the Lord admonishes those who do not believe or have not repented to abstain from this supper so as not to eat and drink judgment on themselves. Therefore, we also charge those who will and willfully continue in their sins to keep themselves from the table of the Lord, such as all who trust in any form of superstition, all who honor images or pray to saints, all who despise God's word and holy sacraments, all who take God's name in vain, all who violate the sanctity of the Lord's day, all who are disobedient to those in authority over them, all drunkards, gamblers, murderers, thieves, adulterers, liars, and unchaste persons. To all such we say in the name of the Lord that as long as you remain unrepentant and unbelieving, you will have no part in the kingdom of God. But this warning is not intended, beloved, to discourage the contrite believer. For we do not come to this supper claiming any merit in ourselves. On the contrary, we come testifying that we seek our salvation apart from ourselves and in Jesus Christ. And By this testimony, we humbly confess that we are full of sin and worthy of death. We also confess that we believe the sure promise of God in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let us pray.